From the MGMA in-home studios, welcome to the Insights Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams. This is part of our future. I mean, I think in terms of being able to engage with our most vulnerable patients uh, in their home and, and in a manner where we have continuity of care with them without them having to physically access us uh, in person in the office, um, I think that's a shift that's happened and is going to stay with us. That's Dr. Avni Thakur on the emergence of remote patient monitoring programs. We'll hear more from Dr. Thakur on telehealth and virtual care's impact on congestive heart failure patients. But first, a word from our sponsor. A proven payment solution for patients' out-of-pocket cost, the Care Credit Health, Wellness, and Personal Care Credit Card gives cardholders a convenient way to pay for treatments and procedures. For healthcare providers navigating financial and operational challenges resulting from the coronavirus pandemic, Care Credit can help reduce time and effort devoted to billing and collections while increasing patient satisfaction. Care Credit currently has over 11 million cardholders and is accepted in more than 240,000 locations nationwide. Learn more about how Care Credit helps providers deliver a better patient financial experience at carecredit.com/mgmapodcast. According to the CDC, heart disease costs the country more than $200 billion each year. New solutions to curb this total have emerged in recent years, and remote patient monitoring and telehealth are chief among them. Today's guest, Dr. Avni Thakur, has experienced noticeable success since implementing a virtual care delivery model for high-risk congestive heart failure patients. The chief medical officer of CHS Physician Partners Medical Group will be a featured speaker at MGMA's Medical Practice Excellence Conference in October, presenting a session on RPM and telehealth, strategies to transform practices to virtual care. Dr. Thakur, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. Now, we're going to talk today about strategies that practices can take to succeed with remote patient monitoring. That's something you've had a lot of success with, but first, uh, I want to get a better understanding about your practice. What's the size and scope? So my personal practice um, is a, a single physician plus NP. So it's myself and an NP. Um, and uh, we are based in Long Island, New York. And the program that we've laid out for remote patient monitoring actually is across some multiple practices. Um, so I oversee a medical group of ambulatory practices that's about 450 physicians. Um, across primary care specialties, and we've rolled the program out initially across um, about 10 of our primary care practices. Um, Some of these are quite large with four or five physicians in a practice, and um, we are now also rolling it out uh, across about four to five cardiology practices that are rather large practices, five to ten providers per practice. Okay, thanks for that. Now, you're an MD. Do you still practice, or are you mainly in administration now? So I still practice. I actually uh, have my own cardiology outpatient practice, uh, you know, non-invasive, echoes, nuclear stress test, consultative cardiology. Um, and I also am the chief medical officer here. So I'm still in practice. Okay. Now, what does your day-to-day look like right now? I know that we're all 
uh, dealing with COVID-19. You and I have been communicating, trying to get you on the show for quite a while, but you guys have been ramping up. You've been so busy, you couldn't take the time out, and I completely understand that. So just give us an idea of what your day-to-day -day is like these days. So um, the day-to-day -day in the last couple of months since COVID hit New York um, has been very different, I think, from what my routine used to be. Um, the last few months were a case study in how to be nimble um, and be able to sort of be, uh, be where you were needed at the time you were needed. So most of my time in the last few months, honestly, has been focused on clinical operations, managing our ambulatory platform through COVID, making sure we put clinical safety protocols in place, so identified our high-risk patients and found ways to connect to them without having to bring them into the office. Uh, redeployed our physicians to other places, in particular into our hospitals and ICUs. Um, and, you know, really, we went through this uh, very, very tough period here, unlike anything we could have ever predicted. Um, and then have started to come out the other side, at least uh, to something we consider a new normal or a mixed operating plan. So in the last few weeks, um, my focus has really been on now reopening practices that have been closed for a few months. Um, redeploying staff and physicians back to the offices and finding ways in which we can continue to maintain clinical operations um, safely for our patients and for our staff. Um, so these days, uh, in the last couple of weeks now, I've started to see patients again. And so most days I am in my clinical office um, and I see patients uh, entirely for about two to two and a half days a week. And then the other days of the week, I focus on administrative tasks and uh, helping the medical group manage uh, their various uh, projects, initiatives, and uh, our ongoing transition um, post-COVID. Mm -hmm. What's been the biggest challenge then in reopening practices? Where have been kind of those hurdles to try to get over? Um, some of the big hurdles for us have been identifying how to take care of our patients safely. So one of the problems that we face is patients are worried about coming in, um, so how to message to patients and also how to feel comfortable that we're messaging um, protocols that we have put in place that really emphasize safety. So that's been a key area for us. Really, the big hurdle is making sure we can revamp our practices so that we can do the things that we need to do but maintain safety as um, kind of central to our operating model and um, message that to the patients. And Thirdly, you know, with respect to procedures and invasive testing, you can imagine a lot of things require prolonged exposure, and there are scenarios where patients can't wear masks or providers sometimes can't wear masks through the entire procedure. Um, so where we have those situations, how to properly screen our patients um, prior to that with testing and quarantine um, to minimize any exposure risk. So these have been kind of key considerations for reopening for us. Okay. Now, one of the things that you've had success with at your practice is through remote patient monitoring, as I had mentioned earlier. Um, it's been especially helpful with patients who have been hospitalized and diagnosed with congestive heart failure. You guys have done some studies on that. Tell us about that. So, you know, I think we were lucky, and I, I'm sure there are other places across the country that started getting involved in um, remote monitoring before COVID happened. So we started our program, you know, in the year prior to COVID. And the initial impetus for us to do this was looking at our heart failure um, patient panels and their readmission rates. So we're a 
hospital system that's well known for cardiology. Our flagship hospital, St. Francis Hospital in Long Island, is a heart center and a center of excellence for cardiac um, disease. And, you know, we were still not happy with the readmission rates uh, for our heart failure patients, and we thought that we could do better. So that's really where the genesis of the program was. Um, and we did it from a population health standpoint. We pulled um, through our EMR patients uh, that we knew were high risk, had multiple readmissions, um, and had diagnosis of uh, acute or chronic systolic heart failure. And we tried to see if we could then identify those patients who were being seen in our practices, our employed medical group uh, primary care practices, um, and set them up for a program like this that would help tie them longitudinally for clinical management um, through technology um, to their practice. So what we've often seen in these readmission programs is that, you know, we send the patients out of the hospital and we do some sort of intensive management of the patient outside the hospital setting, whether that's in a SNF or a rehab or in the home, for that first 30 to 45-day window. Um, but once that management sort of falls off, we see a lot of these patients regress and then you see a, a readmission. So we might have, you know, avoided that 30-day readmission, but ultimately there's a readmission. And what we wanted to do is see if we can extend that type of continuity of care um, somewhat indefinitely and tie the patient to the primary care physician and to that practice um, for the care. So that was the thought process and the genesis of the monitoring program. Um, and we found it to be helpful because, you know, I think the, the heart failure patients that typically get rehospitalized frequently are brittle patients. And they need care indefinitely, not just for a short period of time after their hospitalization. Yeah, and something interesting came up in some earlier correspondence that you and I had. You wrote that this program has created a high-tech and a high-touch quality improvement plan for patients. Um, I get the high-tech because you have them set up, you're monitoring them, but the high-touch, talk about that. How, how were you able to achieve that? So high touch um, means multiple interactions, I think, between the patient and the care team. So one of the nice things about this uh, program is that it's, it's very proactive. So the patient's going home with um, equipment or is having equipment delivered to their home that enables them to measure their vital signs daily, sometimes more than once a day. And these go uh, wirelessly uh, through a transmission um, to the portal, which sits at the desktop, if you will, of their cardiac or primary care care team. So that's a nurse practitioner or a nurse or a PA, in addition to a physician who's taking care of the patient. And it becomes high touch because the team that's taking care of this patient is seeing their vitals almost real time every day. And the design of the program is when the patient falls out of the preset parameters, um, they get a phone call from a nurse or a nurse practitioner or sometimes from their physician to see what's going on and what might be driving the patient, um, you know, falling outside of, let's say, a blood pressure or weight parameter. So what we find is that there's high touch, multiple interactions between the patient and the care team to assess, you know, where they are, what might be going on. Um, did they miss their meds? Did they miss a refill? Did they get confused about taking their meds? Are they not feeling well? Did they have a salty meal? Um, and this type of kind of ongoing communication is really why I think this program is not just high tech, but also high touch. Okay. Now, so you're monitoring those patients, you're keeping track of them. What were the key steps then in implementing this program to really get it on track, 
to get it uh, into this population of patients so you can provide the best care possible for them? Well, some of the key steps were first identifying the patients who would most benefit from the program and then also identifying those who would be able to engage with the program. So sometimes those who would most benefit are perhaps not often able to engage um, based on, you know, their ability to kind of, you know, work with the team, you know, take their own blood pressure or have somebody working with them that could take their blood pressure at home, um, have the ability to have themselves or somebody manage the equipment. So really identifying the right patients, those that benefit intersecting with those who can actually engage with this type of program was the first, I think, key step. The second step that was really important is identifying a champion in the care team. So if, if the patient is tied to a primary care practice, there's typically a physician, a nurse, a nurse practitioner, and sort of a group of people there. One person has to be sort of the quarterback of this and responsible for the program. And most of our practices, we identified a nurse practitioner as the practice champion for the program. And that person would be responsible for checking that dashboard every day, getting to know the patients who are enrolled, be part of their enrollment process so they've you know, established that relationship with the patient over this program. Um, and I think identifying the right providers who are excited about this type of work, are invested in caring for populations and, and sick patients with chronic disease, um, and who are going to be able to have that right if you will, bedside manner, but over the phone with the patients and have the patients to work through this with them um, really was very important. So identifying the right people on the patient end and on the care team end was, was a key step. Um, and then the second key step is identifying equipment that we feel um, was good equipment for our patients and that it was properly user-friendly. Um, some of the equipment is a little more complicated than we think our patients can handle. Um, and also that the connectivity issues um, were largely resolved. So, you know, there are some types of things to consider when you're choosing equipment around Wi-Fi access, um, cellular access, Bluetooth, so on and so forth. Um, so if you know your panel and you sort of know your local geography and what some of the um, limiting factors could be, it helps choose the right equipment. So right providers, right patients, uh, right equipment were sort of three key things to think about. Mm -hmm. How much education is involved then with those patients so they understand what's required of them? You know, we found the front end of this to be a little bit time consuming. Um, you know, the hard part was really for the patients to learn how to use the equipment and get comfortable with it. And what we did initially pre-COVID was when the patients were in, in office for a visit, we would train them on the equipment in office. Um, so we'd set aside an extra 20 to 30 minutes for us to teach them how to use it, as well as for them to try to do like a, you know, a demo uh, run through, like a dry run. And then typically when they go home, the next day we have them su submit a set of vitals uh, to make sure that it was working properly. So the front end, uh, you know, I think took a little bit of time. And again, that practice champion was really critical in making sure that the patients got comfortable with the equipment. But once that happened, um, we found that after they were able to troubleshoot through it a little bit, uh, and the first few readings sometimes took a little bit of um, back and forth to make sure that they knew what they were doing, they were, I think, quite comfortable with it. And, and we set them on a routine of doing this you know, daily. And we had a system put in place in the practices where if they missed more than two days, the dashboard itself would alert the provider that someone should call the patient and remind them to submit a reading. 
Mm -hmm. You said something interesting in there. You said pre-COVID, this is how we did it. So once COVID hit, once, once everything COVID was locked down, down. Yeah. yeah, how were you handling things at that point? What was the communication like? How did you interact with the patients? So post-COVID is a little different. So post-COVID, we don't want to bring our patients into the office if they don't need to be here. Um, and if we can do things virtually, we do it virtually. So what we're trying to do post-COVID is do the training remotely. So we schedule a time with the patient over the phone. We make sure the equipment is shipped to them in advance. Um, and if they feel that they may need someone around at home to help them, then we try to coordinate when a family member or a friend or an aide or someone is there with them. And actually, we set a little additional time aside because it takes a little longer sometimes to talk people through something over the phone. It's a little bit faster sometimes when we do it in person. Um, but we are being sensitive to the fact that, you know, we don't want the patients to have to come in um, for something like this if it's not necessary. So we are sort of trying to run the program um, through a virtual methodology. Now, sometimes, uh, you know, it's, we can FaceTime the patients. And um, that creates some face-to-face -face contact as they're working through it, and they can even, you know, potentially flip the camera on their on their phone and show us the equipment if they're having a problem with it. But we do do the initial onboarding now virtually. Mm -hmm. How many uh, patients have you had in this program? So in my own practice, I have just about 20 now enrolled, okay. and I think uh, we have a couple of other practices in primary care as well as cardiology practices that are starting to enroll more now. Okay. Now, how do you know that it's been successful? What are some of the key measurements that you've been monitoring? I know that you had that kind of the quarterback of the team has been looking at that dashboard every day, but are there some KPIs that you guys are really focused on to make sure this is working? Yeah. So I think over the long haul, we're looking to do this as a study um, as well to see if we can kind of start to influence what we consider our measures of success. So one of them is just patient engagement. Um, and that's sort of early and easy to tell, and we have pretty good patient engagement, and we're measuring that by just the patients being um, committed to the program and, and submitting readings. Um, we're measuring time to guideline-directed medical therapy, so for heart failure in particular, um, making sure the patients are optimized by their parameters and that they're on the right um, assortment of medications for that condition, and how long does it take for them to really get optimized is a measure we're looking at. Um, the third measure of success is, and we just started instituting this, it's a quality of life questionnaire. So we're using the Minnesota Quality of Life Questionnaire and asking the patients to fill that out initially when they enroll into the program and then subsequently at uh, three and six month intervals, three, six, nine, 12 months after they're in the program. Um, and we're looking at seeing whether we can do that at three month quarterly intervals or perhaps we want to span that out to six months. And that's really just to assess, you know, their quality of life. And, you know, obviously the hypothesis is if they do well on the program and they're optimized, we would like to see some uh, improvement in their quality of life. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing we'd be looking at over, I think, a longer period, you know, 12 to 18 months after enrollment is their rehospitalization or uh, ER visit uh, frequency. Okay. What's something in the data or in these findings that surprised you? Um, I think we haven't done a full run of data because, you know, this has been a little bit slowed down because of COVID. We had anticipated having more patients enrolled and being able to kind of look at a larger sample size by now. Um, but I think what we're finding or that did surprise us early on is, you know, first of all, it takes a while for people to learn technology. 
Um, and I think that didn't surprise anyone that it would take a while for the patients to get comfortable with it. But what was pleasantly surprising is that once they were comfortable with it, they were actually able to do it. So sometimes, you know, we see patients in the office and we think they're either too frail or perhaps too elderly or um, there's too many other things going on in the home. They're caring for others or the environment perhaps would not foster them being able to be on a program like this. But we were pleasantly surprised um, at the ability of some of our patients to really maintain engagement. So that was a nice finding. Um, and the other thing that I, we found early on is uh, that noncompliance is an issue with patients, with mm -hmm. medications. And, and sometimes we don't realize to the extent that it is because we don't connect in with our patients that frequently. But because this is such a high-touch environment and, and initially our teams were spending a lot of time with the patients, you realize there's a lot of instances where they can't or don't take their medications. And, you know, that is uh, even often more frequent than one would think. Um, so I think that's another piece that just speaks to the importance of having significant connectivity with the patients. You know, we've mm -hmm. had patients who don't take it because they don't feel well. They don't take it because they forgot. They don't take it because uh, their meds didn't get renewed on time. And a whole lot of patients who have significant confusion about which meds they're supposed to take when. Okay. Yeah. As you know, that since the lockdown occurred, uh, telehealth, telemedicine was expanded. Now we're already hearing talk about some of the reimbursements um, kind of rolling back. Are you, how closely are you monitoring this? And it, will this impact the study at all, uh, depending on what, what takes place here th uh, through CMS? Well, um, I would say to you that we put this in place before CMS expanded a lot of the payment guidelines for telehealth. Um, so in the time of COVID is when telehealth became much more widely implemented. But RPM, or remote physiologic monitoring codes, were made available in, in the, the middle of 2018. Mm -hmm. so, so I think these, this program specifically, I don't think will get impacted because it existed before COVID, and I would not imagine they've rolled that back. Um, I, I think the, the issue, if, if some of the telehealth um, becomes restricted in terms of you know, communication with the patients, there may be some impact. And the reason I say that is that if you can't bring the patients in and you have to have a lot of you know, time to communicate with patients to get them comfortable on a program like this, um, there may be some impact on successfully onboarding a lot of patients into a program. Once they're in the program and they're successfully onboarded, um, we usually can get by by using just the telehealth codes that were specific to remote monitoring. But we do have to sometimes do a couple of remote or telehealth visits initially now to onboard the patients because we can't do it in person as often for these patients. Mm -hmm. yeah. So onboarding, at least at that piece right now, we do um, require some ability to build through telehealth. Okay. Do you have patients already identified that you want to add to the program now? Or how are you bringing new people into this program? There's two ways. Um, so for the heart failure patients in particular, because we're interested in identifying those that have been hospitalized multiple times. Um, so for those patients, we're doing it two ways. One is uh, through a retrospective look back at our claims data. And that's how we identified our initial panel. So we took claims going back one year to see who had been hospitalized more than once and met the clinical criteria. So we did identify a second panel that way um, for you know, more current claims. 
we also are identifying them um, proactively in the hospital. So one of the practices which admits to our hospital, um, our cardiac hospital, it's a very large practice and they take care of a lot of heart failure in the hospital. And we've asked them to identify these folks on admission that would be candidates and then send them home with the equipment or get the equipment um, delivered to their home immediately after discharge. So, you know, upon a hospitalization or through a retrospective review of claims data, it's two ways we're identifying the heart failure patients. And we're also looking now to expand to another disease state, which is hypertension. Um, and those, uh, we're, we're setting aside sort of, or designing what the clinical criteria would be for someone to be eligible. And we're allowing our ambulatory practices to enroll ad hoc as they come across a patient that might be eligible as part of a routine visit um, if they feel that they meet criteria to enroll them thereafter. Okay. Do you guys have any in-home visits? Is that part of the program as well? No, not at this time. Okay. Is it something you're considering or is that not, not part of it for now? Um, I would love to do that. I think uh, there are pr um, providers and vendors around us that do some in-home care for the patients, typically post-discharge, um, or if the patients are, you know, transitioned from hospital to SNF, a skilled nursing facility, for example. Um, so we're talking to them to see if maybe they can potentially partner with us um, in doing some of the in-home piece. Again, in-home is challenging right now during COVID or post-COVID, mm -hmm. so um, I'm not very aggressively pursuing it, but I do think it certainly helps in getting the patients onboarded and comfortable with um, with the equipment and, and learning to be part of a program like this. Right. Are there any final thoughts then that you could share with our audience about how a practice can succeed with a remote patient monitoring program? I think um, this is part of our future. I mean, I think in terms of being able to engage with our most vulnerable patients uh, in their home and, and in a manner where we have continuity of care with them, without them having to physically access us uh, in person in the office. Um, I think that's a shift that's happened and is going to stay with us. So I would encourage everyone who's out there to look at programs like this for their patients. I think in terms of um, key things to think about from a success standpoint, identifying the right patients, identifying the right practices, and making sure you have a clinical champion for this program in each practice who's gonna take responsibility for it. Very, very important. Um, and then the second piece is identifying and um, demoing a couple of different types of equipment because there are some variations, um, you know, equipment to equipment and um, that piece making sure it's user friendly and that a lot of the connectivity issues that, that can happen in your geography um, are thought through before investing in equipment is, is very important. Um, and I think that the third piece is, um, you know, putting in place a program um, to help A, identify the patients the right way, and then B, measure your success in the program. And making sure that you, you know, collect the data as you go forward to measure that success, to make sure that you're going about this the right way and that you're having the impact that you want to have. So these are sort of the key areas I would have in mind before designing a program for any practice. Well, Dr. Thakur, uh, this is a great program you guys are working on, and I want to thank you so much for sharing it with our audience today. Well, thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. That's going to do it for this episode of Insights. Thanks to Care Credit for sponsoring this week's show. To learn more about how Care Credit is helping providers deliver a better patient financial experience, visit carecredit.com 
slash MGMA podcast. Also, thanks to our guest, Dr. Avni Thakur. You can hear her speak at MGMA's Medical Practice Excellence Conference, October 18th through the 21st. For more information or to register, visit mgma.com slash MPEC. If you like the show, please rate and review it wherever you get your podcast. If you have topics you'd like us to cover or experts you'd like us to interview, email us at podcast at mgma.com or find me on Twitter at MGMA Daniel. MGMA Insights is presented by Declan McGee, Rob Ketchum, and I'm Daniel Williams. Stay safe and thanks for listening. Hi, this is Declan McGee, one of the producers for the MGMA Insights podcast. If you like the work we're doing, please consider becoming an MGMA member. Learn more at mgma.com slash membership. Thanks.